Chapter 12, Parts 3 and 4 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 12, Part 3 and 4. Section 3. War of Sparta with Persia. The enterprise of Cyrus had immediately affected the position and prospect of the Greek cities of Ionia. In accordance with their contract, the Spartans handed over the Asiatic cities to Persia, retaining only Abydus on account of its strategic importance. Cyrus, however, bidding for Greek support, had instigated the Ionian cities to revolt from their satrap, Tissaphernes, and to place themselves under his protection. Tissaphernes was in time to save Miletus, but all the other cities received Greek garrisons, and thus, when Cyrus disappeared into the interior of Asia, they had practically passed out of Persian control. After the defeat of Cyrus at Cunaxa, Tissaphernes returned to the Aegean coast as governor of all the districts which had been under Cyprus, and with the general title of commander of further Asia, implying supremacy over the adjacent satrapies. His first concern was to recover the Greek cities of the coast, and he attacked Syme. The Asiatic Greeks were greatly alarmed, and they sent to Sparta an appeal for her protection. The relations of Sparta to Persia were no longer the same, since the help given to Cyrus was an act of war against the king. The successful march of the Ten Thousand inspired Greece with a feeling of contempt for the strength of the Persian Empire. The opportunity of plundering the wealthy satrapies of Pharnabazus and Tissaphernes was a bait for Spartan cupidity. The prospect of gaining signal successes against Persia appealed to Spartan ambition. These considerations induced Sparta to send an army to Asia, and this army was increased by the remains of the famous Ten Thousand who, as already stated, crossed over from Thrace and entered the service of Sparta. Much might have been accomplished with a competent commander, but the general Sibron was unable to maintain discipline among his men, and the few successes achieved fell far short of Sparta's reasonable hopes. Thibron was superseded by Dercalidus, a man who had the repute of being unusually wily. Taking advantage of a misunderstanding between the two satraps, Dercalidus made a truce with Tissaphernes and marched with all his forces into the province of Pharnabazus, against whom he had a personal grudge. A recent occurrence rendered it possible for him to get into his hands the Troad, or Aeolus, as it was called, with speed and ease. The government of this region had been granted by Pharnabazus to Zenus, a native of Dardanus. When he died, leaving a widow, a son, and a daughter, Pharnabazus was about to choose another subsatrap, but the widow, whose name was Mania, presented a position that she should be permitted to fill the post which her husband had held. My husband, she argued, paid his tribute punctually, and you thanked him for it. If I do as well, why should you appoint another? If I am found unsatisfactory, you can remove me at any moment. She fortified her arguments by large presents of money to the satrap, his officers and concubines, and won her request. She gave Pharnabazus full satisfaction by her regular payments of tribute, and under her vigorous administration the Aeolid became a rich and well-defended land. A body of Greek mercenaries was maintained in her service, 
and immense treasures were stored in the strong mountain fortresses of Skepsis, Gergis, and Kebron. She even reduced some coast towns in the south of the Troad, and took part herself, like the Carian Artemisia, in military expeditions. But she had for a son-in-law an ungrateful traitor, Medius of Skepsis, whom she treated with trust and affection. In order to possess himself of her power, he strangled her, then killed her son, and laid hold of the three fortresses which controlled the district, along with the treasure. But Pharnabazus refused to recognize the murder of Mania, and sent back the gifts of Medius with the message. Keep them, until I come to seize both them and you. Life would not be worth living if I avenged not the death of Mania. As Medius was expecting with alarm the vengeance of Pharnabazus, the Spartan army appeared on the scene. Dercilidus became master of the Aeoliad without any opposition, since the garrisons of the cities did not acknowledge Medius, excepting only the forts of Skepsis, Gergis, and Kebron. The garrison of Kebron soon surrendered. At Skepsis, Medius came forth to a conference, and Dercilidus, without waiting to confer, marched up to the gates of the town so that Medius, with the power of the enemy, could do nothing but order them to be opened, and his unwilling orders likewise threw open the gains of Gergis. His own private property was restored to Medius, but all the treasures of Mania were appropriated by the Spartan general, for the property of Mania belonged to her master Pharnabazus, and was therefore the legitimate booty of the satrap's enemy. This booty supplied Dercilidus with pay for his eight thousand soldiers for nearly a year, and it was noticed that the conduct of the heroes of the Anabasis showed a signal improvement from this time forward. The Aeoliad now served the Spartans against the satrapy of Phonabazus somewhat as Decalea had served them in Attica. It was a fortified district in the enemy's country. Sparta, hoping that these successes would induce Persia to make terms and acquiesce in the freedom of the Greek cities, concluded truces with Tissaphernes and Phonabazus, and sent up ambassadors to Sessa to treat with the great king. Dercilidus, meanwhile, crossed into Europe and defended himself with restoring the cross-wall which defended Sestos and the other cities of the Chersonese against the incursions of the Thracians, the inhabitants gladly furnishing pay and food to the army. On returning to Asia, the Spartan commander captured after a long siege the strong town of Atanaeus. Then, by special orders from home, he proceeded to Caria. The Spartan overtures were heard unfavorably at Susa, for the king had been persuaded by his able satrap Pharnabazus to prosecute the war by sea. The Spartans could not cope in mere numbers with the fleet which Phoenicia and Cyprus could furnish him, but everything would depend on the commander. Here fortune played into his hands. There was an enemy of Sparta, an experienced naval officer, who was ready to compass heaven and earth to work the downfall of her supremacy. The Athenian admiral Conon, who we last saw escaping from the surprise of Aegosopotami, was burning to avenge the disgrace of that fatal day. He had found hospitality and protection at the court of Evagoras, king of the Cyprian Salamis, and through him had entered into communication with Ctesias, the Greek physician, whom we already met at Cunaza. Ctesias had the ear of the queen mother Parisatis, and through her influence and the advice of Phonabazus, Conon was appointed to command a fleet of three hundred ships, which was prepared in Phoenicia and Cilicia. Under his command, such a numerous navy was extremely formidable, but the Lacedaemonian government does not seem to have realized the danger, owing perhaps to their experience of the ineffectiveness of previous Persian armaments, 
and they committed the mistake of throwing all their vigour into the land warfare and neglecting their sea power, which was absolutely vital for the maintenance of their supremacy. But when Conon, not waiting for the complete equipment of the fleet, sailed to Cornus in Caria with forty ships, the Spartans were obliged to move. They sent a fleet of a hundred and twenty ships under Pharax to blockade Cornus and Conon's galleys in the harbour, and ordered Desilidus to Caria. The joint forces of Tissaphernes and Phanabazus first raised the siege of Cornus and then confronted Dersilidus in the valley of the Meander. A panic which seized some of the troops of the Spartan general might have been fatal, but the reputation of the ten thousand, whose valour Tissaphernes had experienced, rendered that satrap unwilling to risk a battle, and a conference issued in an armistice. But Sparta had now decided to conduct the war against Persia with greater vigour and on a larger scale and Dersilidus had to make way for no less a successor than one of the Spartan kings. Agesilaus, who now comes upon the scene, had been recently raised to the regal dignity in unusual circumstances. When Lysander retired from public affairs to visit the temple of Zeus Ammon, he had neither discarded ambition nor lost his influence. He conceived the plan of making a change in the Spartan constitution which can hardly be described as less than revolutionary. The idea was that the kingship should be no longer confined to the Eurystenid and Proclid families in which it was hereditary by law, but that the king should be elected from all Heraclids. The Spartan king was not a king in our sense of the word. He was not a sovereign. He was rather a grand officer of the state. But the scheme to make the office elective instead of hereditary was nevertheless momentous. It meant immediately that Lysander should hold the military functions which belonged to the kings, the command of the army abroad for life, he could no longer be disposed or recalled at the end of a term of office, and in the hands of a man like Lysander, this permanent office might become something very different from what it was in the hands of the ordinary Proclid or Eurysthenid. The proportion between the power of king and ephor might be considerably shifted. Lysander's project, which might well have proved the first step to a sort of principate, which might have partially adapted Spartan institutions to the requirements of an imperial state, Lysander did not conceive the possibility of carrying this bold innovation by a coup d'etat. His plan was to bring religious influence to bear on the authorities, and he secretly employed his absence from Sparta in attempting to enlist the most important oracles in favour of his design. But the oracles received his proposals coldly. It sounded far too audacious. He succeeded, however, in winning over some of the Delphic priests who aided him to invent oracles for his purpose. A rumour was spread that certain sacred and ancient records were preserved at Delphi, never to be revealed until the son of Apollo appeared to claim them, and at the same time people began to hear of the existence of a youth named Silenus, whose mother vouched that Apollo was his sire. But the ingenious plot broke down at the last moment. One of the confederates did not play his part, and the oracles bearing on the Spartan kingship were never revealed. Lysander then abandoned his revolutionary idea, and took advantage of the death of King Aegis to secure the scepter for a man whom he calculated he could direct and control. The kingship descended, in the natural course, on Leotichidus, the son of Aegis, but it was commonly believed that this youth was illegitimate, being really the son of Alcibiades. There were doubts on the matter, but the suspicion was strong enough to enable the half-brother of Aegis, Agesilaus, supported by the influence of Lysander, to oust his nephew and assume the scepter. Lysander was deceived in his man. The new king was not of the metal to be the kingmaker's tool, 
Agesilaus had hitherto shown only one side of his character. He had observed all the ordinances of Lycurgus from his youth up, had performed all duties with cheerful obedience, had shown himself singularly docile and gentle, had never asserted or put himself forward among his fellow-citizens. But the mask of Spartan discipline covered a latent spirit of pride and ambition which no one suspected. Agesilaus, though strong and courageous, was of insignificant stature and lame. When he claimed the throne, an objection was raised on the ground of his deformity, for an oracle had once solemnly warned Lacedaemon to beware of a halt reign. But like all sacred weapons, this oracle could be blunted or actually turned against the adversaries. The god did not mean, said Lysander, physical lameness, but the reign of one who was not truly descended from Heracles. Yet those Spartans who believed in literal interpretation of divine words were ill-content with the preference of Agesilaus. The new king displayed remarkable discretion and policy by his general demeanour of deferential respect to the other authorities. This had the greater effect, as the kings were generally wont to make up by their haughty manners for their want of real power. Agesilaus made himself popular with everybody, and he maintained as king the simplicity which had marked his life as a private citizen. He was unswervingly true to his friends, but this virtue declined to vice when he upheld his partisans in acts of injustice. Not long after his accession, a serious incident occurred which gives us a glimpse of the social condition of the Lacedaemonian state at this period, and shows that while the government was struggling to maintain its empire abroad, it was menaced at home by dangers which the existence of that empire rendered graver every year. Commerce with the outside world and acquisition of money had promoted considerable inequalities in wealth, and in consequence the number of peers or fully enfranchised Spartan citizens was constantly diminishing, while the class of those who had become too poor to pay their scotch to the Sicitia were proportionally growing. These disqualified citizens were not degraded to the rank of perioeci, they formed a separate class and were named inferiors. A stroke of luck might at any moment enable one of them to pay his subscription and restore him to full citizenship. But the inferiors naturally formed a class of malcontents, and the narrow, ever narrowing oligarchy of peers had to fear that they might make common cause with the perioeci and helots and conspire against the state. Such a conspiracy was hatched, but was detected in its first stage through the efficient system of secret police which was established at Sparta. The prime mover seems to have been a young man of the inferior class named Synodon, of great strength and bravery. The Ephors learned from an informer that Synodon had called his attention in the marketplace to the small number of Spartans, compared with the multitude of their enemies, one perhaps in a hundred. All alike, inferiors, neodemodes, perioeci, helots, were, according to Synodon, his accomplices. For hear any of them talk about the Spartans, he talks as if he could eat them raw. And when Synodon was asked where the conspirators would find arms, he pointed to the shops of the ironsmiths in the marketplace, and added that every workman and husbandman possessed tools, on the grounds of information which was perhaps more precise than this. The ephors sent for Synodon, whom they had often employed on police service, and sent him on a mission of this kind, but with an escort which arrested him on the road, put him to the torture, and wrung from him the names of his accomplices. It would have been dangerous to arrest him in Sparta, and so spread the alarm before the names of the others were known. Asked why he conspired, Synodon said, I wished to be inferior to none in Sparta. He was scourged round the city, and put to death with his fellows. 
recollecting the histories of other states we cannot help wondering that an ambitious general like lysander did not attempt to use for his own purposes this mass of discontent into which synodon's abortive conspiracy opens a glimpse there was something in the spartan air which made a peer rarely capable of disloyalty to the privileges of his own class section four asiatic campaigns of agesilaus battle of cnidus it was arranged that Agesilaus should take the place of Desidilus, that he should take with him a force of two thousand Neodemodes and a military council of thirty Spartans, including Lysander. In the Spartan projects at this juncture we can observe very clearly the effect of the episode of the expedition of Cyrus and the ten thousand in revolutioning the attitude of Greece towards Persia and spreading the idea that Persia was really weak. The Spartan leaders seem to have regarded the lands of the great king as a field of easy conquest for a bold Greek. King Agesilaus, especially, who now began to disclose the consuming quality of ambition, dreamt of dethroning the great king himself, and felt no doubt that he would at least speedily deliver the Asiatic coast from Persian control. But he lived sixty years too soon, and in any case this respectable Spartan was not the man to settle the eternal question. He regarded himself as a new Agamemnon going forth to capture a new Troy, and to make the illusion of resemblance complete, he sailed with part of his army to Aulis, to offer sacrifices there in the temple of Artemis, as the king of men had done before the sailing of the Greeks to Ilium. If Agesilaus had subverted the Persian empire, the sacrifice at Aulis would have seemed an interesting instance of a great man's confidence in his own star. But the performance of Agesilaus can only provoke the mirth of history, especially as the solemnity was not successfully carried out. The Spartan king had not asked the permission of the Thebans to sacrifice in the temple, and a body of armed men interrupted the proceedings and compelled him to desist. It was an insult which Agesilaus never forgave to Thebes. Lysander expected that the real command in the war would devolve upon himself, and on arriving in Asia he acted on that assumption. He was soon undeceived. Agesilaus had no intention of being merely a nominal chief, and he checked his counsellor's self-sufficiency by invariably refusing the petitions which were presented to him through Lysander. The policy was effectual. Lysander, smarting under the humiliation, was sent at his own request on a separate mission to the Hellespont, where he did useful work for Sparta. The satraps, in the meantime, had renewed with Agesilaus the truce they had made with Dercyllidus, but it was soon broken by Tissaphernes. Agesilaus made a feint of marching into Caria, and then suddenly, when Tissaphernes had completed his dispositions for defence, turned northwards to Phrygia and invaded the satrapy of Pharnabazus. Here he accomplished nothing of abiding importance, but secured a vast quantity of booty with which he enriched his friends and favourites. It was no temptation to himself. The historian Xenophon, who has left us a special work on the life and character of Agesilaus, tells many anecdotes of this campaign to illustrate the merits of his hero. These incidents, which bring out a, his humanity, have more than a personal interest for us. They must be taken in connection with the general fact that the Greeks of the 4th century were more humane than the Greeks of the 5th. We are told that Agesilaus protected his captives against ill-usage, they were to be treated as men, not as criminals. Sometimes slave merchants, fleeing out of the way of his army, abandoned on the roadside little children whom they had bought. Instead of leaving these to perish by wolves or hunger, Agesilaus had them removed and, and given in charge to natives who were too old to be carried into captivity. 
but Agesilaus did not scruple to use the captives, without regard to their feelings, as object lessons for his own soldiers. At Ephesus, where the winter was passed, in drill, he conceived the idea of showing his troops the difference between good and bad training. He caused the prisoners to be put up for auction naked, that the Greek soldiers might see the inferior muscles, the white skin, and the soft limbs of the Asiatics whose body were never exposed to the weather nor hardened by regular gymnastic discipline. The spectacle impressed the Greeks with their own superiority, but it was an outrage, though not intended as such, on the captives. For while all Greeks habitually stripped for exercise, Asiatics think it a shame to be seen naked. Having organized a force of cavalry during the winter, Agesilaus took the field in spring, and gained a victory over Tissaphernes on the Pactolus, near Sardis. The general ill success of Tissaphernes was made a matter of complaint at Susa. The queen mother, Parisatis, who had never forgiven him for the part he played in the disaster of her beloved Cyrus, made all the efforts to procure his downfall, and Tithrostes was sent to the coast to succeed him and put him to death. An offer was now made by Tithrostes to Agesilaus, which it would have been wise to accept. He was required to leave Asia on condition that the Greek cities should enjoy complete autonomy, paying only their original tribute to Persia. Agesilaus could not agree without consulting his government at home, and an armistice of six months was concluded. An armistice with Tithrostes, not with Persia, for Agesilaus was left free to turn his arms against Pharnabazus. In his second campaign in Phrygia, the Spartan king was supported by a Paphlagonian prince named Otis, as well as by Spithridates, a Persian noble, whom Lysander had induced to revolt. The province was ravaged up to the walls of Duskilion, where Phonabazus resided, and the Spartan troops wintered in the rich parks of the neighbourhood, well supplied with birds and fish. The train of Phonabazus, who moved about the country with all his furniture, was captured, but a dispute over the spoil alienated the oriental allies of Agesilaus, who was the more deeply chagrined at their departure, as he was warmly attached to a beautiful youth, the son of Spithridates. The Greek occupation of Phrygia was brought to an end by an interesting scene, an interview between the Persian satrap and the Lacedaemonian general. Agesilaus arrived first at the appointed place and sat down on the grass to wait. Then the servants of Pharnabazus appeared and began to spread luxurious carpets for their master. But Pharnabazus, seeing the simple seat of Agesilaus, went and sat down beside him. They shook hands, and Pharnabazus made a speech of dignified remonstrance. I was the faithful ally of Sparta when she was at war with Athens. I helped her to victory. I never played her false like Tissaphernes, and now, for all this, you have brought me to such a plight that I cannot get a dinner in my own province save by picking up what you leave. All my parks and hunting grounds and houses you have ravaged or burnt. Is this justice or gratitude? After a long silence, Agesilaus explained that being at war with the great king, he had to treat all Persian territories hostile, but invited the satrap to throw off his allegiance and become an ally of Sparta. If the king sends another governor and puts me under him, said Pharnabazus, then I shall be glad to become your friend and ally, but now, while I hold this post of command for him, I shall make war upon you with all my strength. Agesilaus was delighted with this becoming reply. I will quit your territory at once, he said, and will respect it in future, so long as I have others to make war upon. Farewells were said, and Phonabazus rode away, but his handsome son, dropping behind, said to Agesilaus, I make you my guest, and gave him a javelin. 
Agesilaus accepted the proffered friendship and gave in exchange the ornaments of his secretary's horse. The incident had a sequel. In later years, this young Persian, ill-treated by his brothers, fled for refuge to Greece and did not seek in vain the protection of his guest friend Agesilaus. His success in Phrygia rendered Agesilaus more than ever disposed to attempt conquests in the interior of Asia Minor. But in the meantime he had mismanaged manners of greater moment. Before he marched against Phonabazus, he had received a message from Sparta, committing to him the supreme command by sea. The preparation of an adequate fleet was urgent. Conon, with eighty sail, the rest of the armament was not yet completed, had induced Rhodes to revolt and had captured a corn fleet which an Egyptian prince had dispatched to the Lacedaemonians. Agesilaus took measures for the equipment of a fleet of 120 triremes at the expense of the cities of the islands and coastland, but he committed the blunder of entrusting the command to Pisander, his brother-in-law, a man of no experience. After his Phrygian expedition, Agesilaus had been himself recalled to Europe for reasons which will presently be related. Volfarnabazus went to discharge the functions of joint admiral with Conon, who had visited Susa in person, to stimulate the Persian zeal and obtain the necessary funds. In the middle of the summer the fleet of Conon and Pharnabazus, having left Cilician waters, appeared off the coast of the Cnidian peninsula. The numbers are uncertain, but the Persian fleet was overwhelmingly larger than that of Pisander, who sailed out from Cnidus to oppose it with desperate courage. The result could not be doubtful. Pisander's Asiatic contingents deserted him without fighting, and of the rest the greater part were taken or sunk. Pisander fell in the action. The Greek cities of Asia expelled the Spartan garrisons and acknowledged the overlordship of Persia. Thus Conon, in the guide of a Persian admiral, avenged Athens and undid the victory of the Aegospotami in a battle which was almost as easily won. The maritime power of Sparta was destroyed and the unstable foundations of her empire undermined. End of chapter 12, parts 3 and 4.